Today's episode of Found Down is brought to you by Unwound Retreats. Unwound Retreats offers fun events and travel experiences for nurses locally and internationally. Founded by me, Nicole Johnson, ICU nurse and host of the Found Down podcast, I provide opportunities for nurses to practice self-care, learn, and travel together. These last two years have been brutal in healthcare, and why not give yourself the gift to unwind, learn, and grow? Previous guests have loved the experiences, especially because you can just show up and know that everything will be taken care of. Unwound Retreats is offering exciting and luxurious retreats in Morocco and Mexico. Go over to unwoundretreats.com and sign up to get on the email list so you can find out more. Welcome to the Found Down Podcast. This is a podcast of untold nursing stories that are sometimes hilarious, dark, insane, and anything in between. As a warning, this show is rated E and is mature in content. It often deals with the reality of life and death and how we as nurses intersect with that on a regular basis. If we laugh, it's not out of disrespect. We love what we do and have every intention of continuing to do so. With that, enjoy the show. So funny story, when you first sent the email and you'd said that your podcast is rated E, I initially was like, oh, it's E for everyone. She must have listened to the show. And she's like, hey, I I, I hear how you talk. We can't talk like that in this show. And then I'm like, oh, E can also mean explicit. And then I listened to your podcast and I'm like, oh, I'm going to be right at home. That's exactly right. This is going to be fantastic. And I want to tell you, so I have been listening to your podcast um, and I want to say thank you for putting out the podcast. I think it's hard to make a podcast that really finds, especially in like our space, right? Like medicine, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. to have a podcast that really finds that unoccupied territory of really kind of paying attention to how the people in healthcare are doing is hard to find. And you really fill that spot and you do it really well. So I just want to say thanks for putting on such a great podcast. You can count me as a fan and a listener uh going forward now it's, no it's way beautiful place to have it yeah it's a really well done podcast and so thank I'm you excited when you asked me to be on it i so. well i'm just so honored i was like as i was listening to your show sorry for the folks out there we're gonna have a little bit of podcaster to podcaster like um moment but um <laughs> When I was listening to your show, I was like, God, makes me miss having a co-host. I love this like back and forth that you have with your co-host. And I'm forgetting his name. Steven? Spencer. Spencer. Shit. Yeah. Um, He's not that important. It's fine. <laughs> but I I just love the, you know, the back and forth. And also your show is really educational. So um, thank you. And for folks out there, you're going to want to check out EMS 2020. And by the way, I haven't formally started the show, but this is Nicole Johnson. I'm the host of the Found Down Podcast. And today we're talking to Chris, Chris Fingston. Yeah, I- Fingston. That's it. Yes. Okay. Nailed he's it. He's a flight paramedic with over 15 years of experience. And he obviously is a co-host of this um, show called EMS 2020, where they review calls, um, which I think is such a brilliant idea. It's just like... You know, it's like de- it's like what we want to do after work when we've had a really bad shift. We want to debrief with somebody. Mm-hmm. Like, well, go ahead. Yeah, it's we were actually kind of surprised it hadn't been really done. I mean, people have done case reviews before, but it's normally like one episode in a podcast. And we kind of had this thought of like, well, like there are so many things that we wish we knew, like getting out of paramedic school. And it's got to be the same for a nurse because, you know, like you're in school and they teach you all these things then you get out there 
And all the things that go wrong or that make a difficult, difficult call usually aren't the things that you learned in school. Because a lot of the calls we review, it's not like someone got on scene and forgot how to do CPR all of a sudden or forgot what meds to give. We always remember those things. But it's like, so how do you get this patient? You know, how do you continue good CPR while extracting a patient from the hobbit hole that they live in going up a flight of stairs the size of your thumb? You know, and we're like, <laughs> we got to fill this space. And uh, when we first started, like we were calling, we didn't want to do anything too close to us because we wanted to remain impartial. We didn't really want to know the people involved. Um, so we were calling like contacts we had like around the country, just like begging, like, hey, do you have anything we can run on this show that we can? Because obviously you have to you have to make it private. You, we do just full disclosure. We do change facts about the call to protect privacy of both responders um, and the patient, of course, because that's really paramount to us. Um, but yeah, so we did that and we were kind of like getting these calls. We were doing like one call every two weeks. And then there's been like a couple moments, and I'm sure you've had the same moments in your podcast where all of a sudden it seems like you were, you had like a few downloads here and there, and then a switch gets flipped. And all of a sudden you're getting a rush of downloads and then your inbox starts filling up. We're like, oh, this is cool. People really like this. And then you kind of maintain a level and then the switch gets flipped again. And then there's more listens and there's more emails. And so now it's become this really awesome thing where we're a little in over our heads, I think, but it's exciting and we're enjoying it. And yeah, we really love doing this podcast. It's almost therapeutic at this point. Yeah. Well, cause do you, how did you do it? Do you do like one episode a week? You, do you guys come together and just pick, go through your fun, like possible cases and be like, Oh, this would be a good one to do. Do you do a lot of prep work before you do it? Or you just kind of roll into it? Uh, so yeah, we kind of, it really depends on the episode. Our big thing right now is we do what we do one a week and we like to, ideally we like to do a zoom meeting and interview the responders. So we're doing one interview a week, which, um, I've seen on your podcast podcast, you do a ton of interviews. So you know how busy that can get. Yes. Um, when it comes to the call, one of us usually presents the call. That's usually Spencer. Um, I'm more on the technical and audio side. So I do most of the editing and the equipment is like all my equipment and that kind of stuff. Um, and I do a lot of the social media work. Uh, he does a lot of the interviews every now and then I'll do one too, but we try and pick them in a way where we don't want to teach the same lesson week after week. We do revisit old lessons, obviously, because you kind of have to, and there's only so many new lessons to come up with, but, um, yeah, that's kind of how we pick them is we kind of say like, okay, like what's, what's unique. Cause like if we have two airway calls back to back, we usually don't want to do it, you know, right back to back where we have an airway problem. Um, but then sometimes there are other times where calls will play into each other really well. I'm like, oh, you know, we should do these two back to back. So it really depends on kind of what's going on, on how we pick which call to do. As far as the prep work goes, one of us, we do write a show prep. And the big thing is we just want to make sure that as we read the call, if there's points, because our shows can stretch. I mean, our most recent Tough Crowd or Tough, tough, tough crowd. crowd, I don't remember what I named it. Tough uh, crowd. But yeah, they... Um, that one, that's our longest episode ever. And it's over two hours. And I was kind of secretly hoping that no one was going to listen to it as I was going to be a poor performer because then, because I'm, I'm like, I don't want to do two hour shows again. It's hard. And then it actually, it set a record for download. So it went the opposite oh, shit. way. You're like, oh no. I'm like, oh great. And so I think I'm just going to let someone like, I, I can't do a two, a two hour episode every week, but um, we did. Yeah. So we did that one and uh, that one ended up lasting two hours, but yeah, there's, there's a show prep because they last so long. We try to make sure that if there's points that we want to make, we get them down. And we usually like to have the other person come in cold. And so that nice. we can kind of, 
represent the audience perspective a little bit. Yeah. You know? that's cool. Um, yeah. And, and sometimes it's hard because it all comes in, into the same inbox. And so like, uh, and then we kind of go through them and, and we pick which ones we want. And so usually we know a little bit about the call, but once we've kind of decided like, Oh, Hey, like I'm going to do this one, or I'm not going to do this one. Then we just kind of shove it away so we can come in cold. Um, because we, we think there's a lot of value in having that kind of organic reaction of like, Oh, what is going on of somebody else? Yeah. So. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so cool. I cannot actually, I am like, as soon as I get off this interview, I'm going to re up tough crowd because I want to hear what happens. Um, if you want a fun call and sorry, I, I always have no, to no, please. It was a landmark episode for us. Uh, it was also when we find when we came to our new theme song, um, it was the same episode, but it was a call because it's called the name of the episode is called I see dead people. And uh, it's an older episode. I want to say it's like episode 20 or something like that. We're up to mm -hmm. 70 some odd, 76. We're going to be releasing our 76th episode on the 24th, um, which will be yesterday, I think, by the time this airs. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, oh, happy Thanksgiving, by the way. In advance. Yes. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving. So it's an amazing call. And I'll spoil it because, I mean, it's in, it's in, it's in the description, but they end up running... Uh, two code 99s which i know there's some people that don't use that vernacular but that's uh, no pulse not breathing and so cpr calls and they end up running two patients in one house and there's only one paramedic um <gasps> yeah and so i had heard about this call in a neighboring district and i knew one guy that worked there and oh, he told shit. me about a long time ago and i'm like it's one of those calls that's so amazing i'm like i don't think it's true or i didn't think it was true <laughs> until finally we started i heard about this before we ever did the show and so we started doing the show and it comes around again, but from somebody else. And it's almost verbatim what my friend had told me. And so I'm like, I got to dig into this. And sure enough, as amazing and as outlandish as the story is, it was true. And uh, the paramedic, um, you know, because a lot of our calls kind of revolve around what goes wrong. This was one of those calls where we reviewed it because this is how, like, this is what went right. Um, she walked into a scene as the only paramedic. And just, you know, we really push, you know, establishing leadership roles on scenes. And she established a leadership role right off the bat and successfully uh, saved one person. I mean, I'll, I'll let you guys listen, but it's, um, yeah, it's, she just does an incredible job. And it was one of my favorite episodes because it's just Spencer and I basically being in awe of this story that we thought was so good. It was too good to be true, but it was, it ended up being very true. And we got it from multiple sources. And so wow. we, we got to run it. And it's one of my one of my favorite ones that we've done is, is that one. Oh my God. I can't even imagine oh. like that experience. I've got to listen to that because that would be like your worst nightmare, right? Like how oh, yeah. how the hell and actually, I mean, what do you guys have like little radios on your on you where you're like you could be like do. boop. Um I need yeah. whatever. I don't know what you'd say. What would you say? <laughs> Uh, it really depends. Like it's going to depend. Like every district works differently. Like oh, okay. every municipality is different. But like in the ones that that I work, uh, we carry what's called an 800 megahertz radio system, and it allows us to. So in the area that I work, so I actually have two jobs. I'm a flight paramedic, but I also am a part time ground paramedic as well, just in a normal 911 system. And it's a really cool system to be a part of because you get to be a pretty independent paramedic, but also work with other paramedics. Um, and so we have like an urban rural mix. Um, but if you're out in an area where you don't have help, uh, you're, you know, if you're the only ambulance on scene, for example, you do have a radio where you can say, Hey, I need an additional unit or I need a fire engine or I need something like that. Uh, in that particular call, 
the big thing was they were out. It was a busy night. And so they had no additional resources. She had like a volunteer fire engine with her, which had like some first responders and some EMTs, um, but no other paramedics. And so it really limits what can be done. And um, the way she handled it, I mean, again, it, I don't want to spoil the episode because it's an amazing episode, but the way this paramedic handled it was awesome. I mean, everyone got the best chance. Those two patients got the best chance anyone could have ever given them because of this paramedic was just bold, clear, concise, calm, and nailed it. So it was super awesome. Oh my God. So good. I've got to listen to it. Okay. Let's talk about you for a minute. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, you, how did you get involved in your line of work? Like when did, were you like, yes, I want to be a flight paramedic. Okay. So a flight paramedic actually came a little bit later in life. So just to kind of clarify, I've been a paramedic now for, well, I've actually been, I've been an EM, I've been a first responder of some kind or another for 18 years and uh, a paramedic for the past uh, 14, 15 of those. And then it was recently uh, almost two years ago that I became a flight paramedic. Um, but the way I actually got started was, so my dad was a firefighter paramedic and he was actually, he's a paramedic for an ambulance company as well. And so it was always kind of there. Um, but as a teenager, I really didn't want to do it. And I, uh, I wanted to go like the tech route or something like that. And I kind of went that route a little bit. And then one day I'm driving home from high school and uh, I had a car full of friends and we saw a car turn in front of a motorcycle. It ended up being a pretty bad accident. So I pulled out to try and help and realized I didn't know anything. I had no skills whatsoever. Uh, there was nothing I could do to help anybody on this, on this scene. And, you know, knowing that my dad's a firefighter paramedic, I felt like it just felt really wrong to me. I'm like, why don't I know anything? So I'm like, yeah. well, I should at least go like take a CPR class. Right. And so I went and took a CPR class and then my dad's like, Hey, do you want to come do a ride along? And I was 17 at the time, I think. And I'm like, yeah, I'll come do a ride along. I got my CPR card. And then the next day I went and did a ride along and kind of the writer's curse is that when people do ride alongs, they want to see the really good calls and the action. Right. And they never do. They get stumped. They'll run, you know, no calls or boring calls or something like that. I show up, I have my CPR card on me. I'm really proud of it, which of course in a fire station, like, yep, everyone has one great job. Uh, but you know, <laughs> uh, and then the very first call we get right off the gate, CPR needs to be done. And even though I was 17, I was CPR certified. And so the officer on the engine said, said, Hey, if you want to do real chest compressions on a real patient, you're certainly welcome to, you know, like, and I'm like, yeah, oh, awesome. I'm, I'm going to do that. And of course this is 20 years ago. And we hadn't yet discovered that having one person do compressions the entire time is poor form because we get tired and we don't realize it. Um, and so sure enough, I did compressions forever and woke up the next day sore there ever been in my life. But oh, wow. uh, it was kind of one of those things that it was kind of at that moment that I'm like, you know, like I found that in myself that even when the scenario was dire, I could perform my functions. I felt really proud of the job I did. And it was really energizing to me. And it was kind of after that, that I think I fought it for a little bit, but then I kind of realized like, no, like this is your industry. Like maybe it's something you start out as a volunteer and you know, maybe it's just something you do, but like, this is, this is kind of a part of me and I had to do it that way. And so I went on and got my EMT basic certification, um, which is you know, mostly like first aid. And then uh, there's a limited amount of medications that you can uh, give to people. Um, most of them are like uh, PO or uh, by mouth uh, medications. And um that kind of stuff. Uh, we don't start IV. EMTs don't start IVs, those kind of things in most municipalities anyway. And then I was an EMT for a bit. 
And I really loved that. I signed on with an outfit that let EMTs do like standby events. So we'd go to like a, like the blazer games, for example, or the racetrack and we'd do that. Then I got on an ambulance. Then I got paramedic certification and kind of one thing led to another. And then I did that for like a decade, a little more. And then I kind of wanted the next clinical challenge. I loved my ground job, but I kind of want to see what the next step was. And I had some friends that had gone over to uh, the local flight agency. And of course, I've been running calls with them and landing on scene. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to give it a go. And it was super competitive because they cover a wide area. So when they open up for a paramedic, a lot of spots go in. So I had to apply twice the first time I got passed over. And then the second time I applied and I got it. And then I got into the agency and that's been an eye-opening journey is to be a flight paramedic. It's a completely different job and I really love it. Wow. I wonder if you could talk about like the nuances, like what's different about it? Like what, I mean, of the flight paramedic versus your yeah paramedic role. Yeah. Versus, yeah. Versus just like nine, like, like ground nine one. Yeah. yeah. So um, obviously, so uh, I'm based, so there's a lot of different jobs within flight and I'll, I'll kind of briefly go over them, but they really boil down to a division of fixed wing and rotor wing. Um, fixed wing is, I mean, I know a lot of people don't <laughs> like fixed wing. What's that? That's just an airplane. Um, and so rotor wing is of course, helicopter. Uh, I'm primary, I'm out of a rotor wing base. So I'm on the helicopter and we do a mix of interfacility transports and scene calls. And it's about a 30-70 split with 70% actually being interfacility. And so versus on the ground, it's a little bit different. When you're doing ground stuff, you typically do uh, usually a 50-50 split or less, uh, less interfacility than, than what you do uh, in flight. And there's a few reasons why, uh, particularly in my area in flight, we are in a, you know, helicopters get a lot of use in smaller communities where the big hospitals with more services available are farther away and they need to get there quick. You know, we did one recently where there was an, a, a, an aortic dissection, which actually, it was an amazing call. Um, it was a, the guy was symptom free by the way, and they actually caught it in a routine CT scan and they're like, Holy crap, what's this? And he was mid dissection and we had to fly him quickly <gasps> to surgery because they can't do it there. Whoa. Anyway. Um, like, so don't get upset. Don't get stressed out. You're like, don't, don't to the yeah. patient. You're like, don't want him to, he was super nice the entire time. He's one of my favorite patients. Uh, he loved the helicopter ride. I mean, that's another tangent, but he was like, he just loved it. We sat him up so he could look out the window and all that stuff. And he wanted to help move over and, and which is just going to be a lot of flexing of abdominal muscles and increasing interthoracic pressure. I'm like, no, buddy, like, don't move. Like, if you have to <laughs> cough, like, warn us <laughs> because right. don't. Right. Um, right. Yes. Yeah. But uh, so like in flight, for example, uh, I'm a paramedic and I work with a critical care nurse. And so my partners are critical care nurse. And that has been that has really expanded uh, what I'm able to do and my knowledge. And it's an awesome team in the sense when we do like scene calls, the nurses are very much like, hey, this is kind of a paramedic's bag. Like when it comes to like trying to figure out because when you run a scene call like you are the person who's figuring everything out you're taking in all the calls there's no other physician to hand off there are other responders on scene typically and so they kind of help out but you know you don't have any diagnostic imaging you don't have any labs you don't have any of that stuff and so you kind of have to figure out like what's the worst thing right now that i can fix in the next five to ten minutes and that's where paramedics really really shine and so we get to kind of provide that perspective to the nurses but the nurses with the way I've really grown as a provider is, for example, I'll use that call. 
So we land and we got a patient where we have a known diagnosis of an aortic dissection. And the big thing there is managing blood pressure, right? And so uh, we're going to be looking at different beta blockers and when to use them. And that's life-saving stuff this guy needs. Like he needs his blood pressure managed. And Less than 140 or something like that, I think would be strange. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, for him, as long as he's conscious and we can get it down to the low 100s, like we're totally happy. And so we walk in and he's in the 160s to 170s systolic. And the nurse I'm with, he's already on a drug called Esmolol, which I'm not, I'm not sure what your, um, what your listener base is, but it's mostly, I think it's mostly critical care, but it is a lot of nurses. So there are a lot of nurses who listen, some RTs, some physicians. Perfect. So I could probably stop saying like what PO means because everyone knows. Perfect. There will be, (laughs) there are some lay people that listen and sometimes I try to do that explanation and sometimes I'm just like, I'm not doing it. I right. just, you know, I just you know forget. And, yeah. Right. Don't Google it. Yeah. <laughs> Your friend uh, we Google. do that on our show too. Um, but yeah, you know, Esmol, it's a, it's a beta blockers can help lower blood pressure. And then the nurse I'm with, she has a ton of critical, you know, care experience and she's like, Hey, let's add nicardipine. And it's like, well, like I know what it is and I know what our dosages are and our dose has a range. We start at two and a half to five and then we increase by two and a half milligrams an hour um, as needed. Uh, and so I punched it up and just started off at two and a half. And she's like, no, let's start it out at five. And she's hundred percent right. Because this guy's blood pressure was so high. She had experience with this medication. We bumped it up to five and we got his uh, blood pressure down to a much better range very, very quickly. And then we completed the transport and we got follow-up, which that's another thing I love about the flight agency I work with is we're required to get follow-up on every patient, which is sorely missing from 911 ground paramedics. We often drop patients off and we never hear back at all. We don't know if we did a good job, bad job. We don't know. But in flight, we do. And we got a call back and we talked to uh, the team that was with them. And they said, yeah, he was he was on the cusp, but his repair was successful. And at that point, they hadn't extubated him yet. They, he was still innovated, but the repair was successful and he was right on the cusp. And so that was one of those moments where I was like, that nurse's knowledge that she had where we got the blood pressure down on a guy who was maybe minutes away from not making it really mattered. And it was something that I didn't have. And so it was really cool to see the pieces of experience that my nurse partner brings. And then there's experience that I get to bring and it makes a really awesome team. So that's the main difference there. That's why flight's different than 911 because in 911, if you're the paramedic, very oftentimes you are the highest level of experience. And so you don't have, and everyone else is kind of in your own same vein, right? They're like everyone has kind of the same mm-hmm. tools in the toolbox. Yeah, bandwidth of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's where it's kind of different. So you often find yourself um, in more of a leadership role and kind of the, like your experience is really all that counts. And sometimes it's a great thing. Sometimes it's not great. And, you know, I'll tell you, working with critical care nurses uh, has made me a lot more comfortable with things like um, drips, like in, in ground EMS and 911, like there's kind of a joke that goes around. I'm a paramedic, so I can say this. And that is, if you ever want to confuse a paramedic, ask them the second dose of any medication. And that's because we're only with people for like 15, 20 minutes. Right. And so, yeah. And so that's kind of the joke uh, is that. And uh, and like almost every med we give is push dose. You know, it's just like, oh, here you go and push. And we occasionally hang up drips, but it's rare. Like you'll hang like, like in, for me, you know, in a month, I may hang one medication as, a, as an infusion. And it's usually I'm doing a transfer. And it's an infusion that's already going and I just continue it versus on my flight job, it's every day. And that that's a big difference. In fact, most of my medication pushes on my flight job 
are infusions over time. And so it's made me a lot more comfortable setting up infusions in my ground job. And it's actually translated really well when I pick up ground chips. Yeah. So. Oh, I'm just thinking about how how many drips one can have. Yeah. And if you're having to transport somebody who's really critically ill, you could have easily, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know what your capacity is, but you easily have eight. Yeah. I mean, we, so we carry six on the helicopter. Um, sorry. Uh, so we carry six on the helicopter and we have six of our own pumps. And, but if we have to borrow it from the sending facility, we'll borrow more pumps. And we've done that before too. Um, so the most I've ever taken anybody on uh, was six where we just maxed out all, all of our pumps. But again, I've only been doing it for two years. There's nurses with just horror stories of like, yeah, every square inch of the helicopter was filled with a pump doing something. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot to manage, man. Um, oh. I have a lot. I have so much that I could ask you about. Um, yeah. What? Um, I think what has been um, like the most surprising about your flight job? Um, so the, uh, oof. the biggest surprise thing is actually going to be a non-clinical thing, if, if that's okay. It's actually yeah, more totes. of a soft I would say. Um, it's been how supportive the flight company is of their healthcare providers. Um, I'll, I'll say the name of flight. Co- well, yeah, I'll say it. I, I work I, for Life Flight Network. They're 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 a major agency, and I, and I have nothing but positive things to say about them. Truly, yeah. um, the ground agency I work for, they're a really good ground agency. I have nothing bad to say about them either. Um, but the clinical focus and the support that I've received from the flight company that I work for now has been absolutely stellar. And I think that was the biggest surprise to me is coming over and going to a working for a not-for-profit company that is uh, so invested in your clinical uh, progression and growth as a provider that um, like you walk in and there's training all the time. There's a physician who reviews all of your charts. We have to get follow-up on every patient. And it's just like to go to an agency that where you feel supported um, constantly supported in, in the goals that you want to do that you really, that are really important to you, um, was just mind blowing to me. So that was just kind of one of the biggest things that, that I really enjoyed and just to really, and then like to work with the nursing team, I'll, I'll admit this when I went in, I was a little fearful of working with, uh, the nurses because I had heard, you hear rumors about other flight programs where they kind uh-huh. of treat the medic. Yeah. They treat the medic like a Sherpa where it's like, you just carry things like that's all you do and that kind of stuff. And I was really worried about that. And then I got in and the nurses were super welcoming. They mentored me in a lot of the things that I didn't know. They, at the same time though, they're also really respective of like my experience. And, you know, they, they, they use, they asked me questions and it really felt good to have a, to have a, a nurse with a ton of flight experience turn to me. And I remember this first moment, it was a nurse I worked with named Roger. He's awesome. Uh, he now has some coosh job at a cath lab somewhere, but still, uh, <laughs> I worked with him and he, uh, and it was a patient and he, and he turns to me and he goes, well, you think we should pace them? Now here's the thing. I know hands down, Roger wanted to pace the guy, but uh, one, he was testing me a little bit cause I was new and, and he should, that was his job. He was a preceptor. Um, but it mm-hmm. felt good to have somebody who with all this experience of being a critical care nurse turn to me and be like, Hey, what do you want to do? What do you think's right? And I said, yeah, we need to pace this guy. And he's like, all right, let's do it. 
And it's just, it was an amazing feel feeling. And like for my mental health to really feel validated in that way uh, was awesome because I was used to at my old job, like I'd been there forever. I was a supervisor. Um, I was, you know, and so it was kind of like, I don't want to say I was at the top of my game because I never feel like that. And I'm, I'm proud that I never feel like I'm at the top because I always keep learning. Right? right. But I was experienced and I was comfortable and it was, it was nice, but you know, I, I kind of felt like I wasn't really growing. And when you're kind of at the top of that ladder and you've been doing it for so long, um, you know, people tend to not worry about you so much. You know what I mean? They're like, ah, he's yeah, God, he's been doing it forever. And then to kind of go over to someplace where like, I admit like the rug was pulled out from under me. It was a completely new experience. It was a, a new environment to work in with sicker patients who are sick. All, I mean, it's a helicopter. They're all sick, but um, yeah. which actually that was funny on one of my, like my first week I turned to Roger and I said, man, every patient we had today has been super sick. And he turned to me and goes, yeah, it's a helicopter. I'm like, it's a fair point. That's a very fair point. <laughs> But, <laughs> you wouldn't just uh, be hopping in an helicopter if you were doing fine. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it happens. Or I don't know. Where, you know, it, but it's rare. Like, it's not like on 911, you get people who abuse the system just for like taxi rides. You know, they'll call and be like, hey, I need to get, a, you know, oh, I have chest pain. Can you take me to the hospital across town? And they get off your gurney and run away when you get there. That happens. Shut and, up, dude. Yeah. Oh, it happens. Yeah. It happens frequently um, where people will do that. And it's, uh, yeah. And so you'll take them all the way across town. And you know it's going to happen, too, because you can see them making up a fake name and a birthday when, when you ask them for it, that kind of stuff. But we legally <laughs> we can't turn it. They say they have chest pain. We can't turn them down. So right, right. we go and then they'll be like, hey, uh, can, can I have my stuff there? And they kind of grab their stuff. And you're like, yeah. And then they get out. And then you put the gurney down so they can get to the bed. And they're like, yeah, I'm just going to walk out. And they just walk out. And that's it. But really that doesn't happen expensive. in a helicopter. No, it doesn't. doesn't. It doesn't happen in a helicopter. Yeah. So wow. that's. That's what's nice there. But yeah, I think that's been the biggest shock was that I think seeing how much I got to grow as a provider as a result from working with people that at one point I was a little intimidated by. Um, and now I have, uh, you know, it's, it's like a new family. I mean, they really are family to me too. Like the base we work at, it's uh, it's been an incredible experience. So I think that's been the most shocking change so hmm. far. That's great. What an awesome, positive change. That's so cool. I, I feel like for myself, if I was, this is all hypothetical, but if I was a critical care nurse working um, with a with a para paramedic, I would be like, well, I don't know exactly what your scope is, but I'm not going to underscore it at all. Like under, like, yeah. I, like, I think, I mean, you guys, speaking of like, what is the scope of a paramedic? I mean, flight yeah. paramedic. I mean, I, I think you guys can do way more stuff than we can, right? Um, so yes and, and no, and, and some of my ignorance might show here. So feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so paramedics have a really bizarre scope in the sense that it is both really limited and unlimited at the same time. So, um, every paramedic, usually in like a 911 system, for example, and it really depends on the environment they work in because paramedic is, is kind of trying to do its best nursing impression by expanding out into other fields and doing different things. Um, but uh, in the 911 system where it was kind of born out of, paramedics have a series of standing orders. And the most, and the standing orders is essentially this. It's, they're usually written kind of like this. And that is, if you assess this on scene and you, and you think, you know, this is what you've assessed, 
here's your toolbox that you can use and here's why you do different things. You know, I mean, a great, great example would be like respiratory calls. Like, okay, so if you assess, you know, wheezing or otherwise believe they have constricted lung sounds, here's your options. And your options involve everything from albuterol and atrovent and duonab, you know, epinephrine, depending on what's going on, um, you know, dexamethasone, just a, different drugs. And then there's usually a blurb by them like, hey, like, if you suspect this because of patient's history, you know, consider these ones. And that's kind of how it's written. And these are our standing orders. And so that is, so a lot of people say, well, paramedics don't need physician orders to do things. They do. It's just called a standing order. And it's basically just, you know, something. So that you're do not calling somebody every five minutes to be like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not to state the obvious. And for them, like you waste a lot of time there. There's just. Yeah. So in Oregon and I believe Washington as well, and most states, the paramedics are uh, completely autonomous in terms of what they want to do. There are states like California, for example, where they do have to call a physician before initiating any treatment. And so it will change state to state. Um, I've done some tests. I had to take a test in California. It was a national exam. That was just the next place I could go to take it. So I flew down there to take it. And I talked to some of the guys down there and they were like, yeah, it, it is like, cause I'm like, I heard rumors. You guys really have to call for everything. And they're like, yes, yes, we do. We have to call for just about everything. And I'm like, doesn't that waste a lot of time? We're like, it does. It really does. Uh, they're trying to push for some change down there because like um, all of us have degrees now. Um, almost every state requires at least an associate's degree to be a paramedic. Uh, there's some bachelor's programs coming out as well. And so we're totally capable of doing it. It's just whether or not uh, you know physicians at the state level want to open that up and they start really worrying about liability. But there's enough data now that shows that when you free your paramedics to respond and act in a manner without having to call for every single thing, they make the right decision and they save time. And so Oregon has really embraced that. Uh, Washington as well. Uh, you're based in Seattle, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So Oregon and Washington, I mean, it's a great place to have an emergency. So because uh, your <laughs> your states are really invested in supporting their paramedics. And so we have a lot of play here. Now, as far as our scope of practice, terms, like what exactly we can do, um, there's the state standing orders uh, and you can't go farther than your state. Your state is your absolute limit. And then you have your agencies or your municipality standing orders. Like, for example, uh, I work you know, in a county in Oregon, and that county has its own medical director. And they can shrink the scope uh, lower than the Oregon scope. Um, they are allowed to add certain things within limits. You know, they can't go too crazy. So if there's something like a medication, like, for example, we give preparacaine for eye injuries, Um and, or not preparacaine, but um, alkane for eye injuries. I think it's the same thing. But anyway, we don't give it a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. But we have that. And it's a bizarre protocol that like very few other agencies have. But we have it because we happen to have a physician that's like, yeah, if you got an eye injury, it's great because it keeps them from moving the eye because it reduces the pain. And so it's a, it's a good thing to have. And we were able to add that. And that's not really in the Oregon scope. Uh, past that... The other caveat would be like a transfer. So we have someone going from one hospital to another and they're going to be on a drip or they're going to be on blood product or something like that. That's not in the state's scope necessarily. Uh, Well, blood product is now, but let's say, I mean, Esmolol would be a great example. There's no state scope for a paramedic for Esmolol. Um, But if we were picking up at a hospital that was giving Esmolol, as long as we have a written physician's order from that physician for this specific patient, um, to continue, actually it can be a verbal order, um, to continue this treatment, we can continue virtually any treatment, you know, be it a chest tube draining or be it, you know, medication infusing, as long as we have a physician's order to do so, we can continue it. Uh, if we need to modify that treatment, 
Uh, or if the vision is like, hey, take this bag of whatever, of cardiac helping juice with you. And then, you know, if you need to start it, start it. We couldn't do that unless they rode along with. And so oh, that's okay. kind of where that stops mm -hmm. uh, versus I believe a nurse could totally do that. Like if they hand you a bag, say, hey, start this when you want to. They totally could. Um, mm -hmm. Now for the life flight side of things, because I work with a nurse, essentially I'm allowed to, I mean, as long as I'm paired with the nurse and she has that order, um, uh, he or she has that order, they have that order. I can uh, absolutely, there's no, there's no issues with doing it whatsoever. The only thing in my flight job that is outside of my scope that I cannot do is place a chest tube. Uh, so I can do a decompression. We can innovate. We can give any medication that the nurse is allowed to give. Um, but we cannot place chest tube. That'll be up to the nurse. Um, mm -hmm. so that being said, again, because my agency rocks that I work with, uh, we go to all the same cadavers labs and our physicians like, nope, everyone needs to know how to do a chest tube because it's going to be just you two in a helicopter doing it. And everyone needs to know the steps. So all the paramedics are trained to do chest tubes. Um, but on an actual patient, we can't do them. Uh, allegedly in our area, there's been some talk about letting paramedics do that. I mean, I, but I've, I've heard that for ever. So, mm -hmm. and it's never happened. So we'll see if it does. Interesting. That's all very interesting. I know, like, I've, I mean, heard that um, nurses, like, work at the top of their scope um, when they're in flight. Um, and yeah. I would imagine it's the same for you. Um, but, like, I know about you. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I cannot. I'm not allowed to place chest tube. I'm not allowed to intubate. I'm, you know, current, like... But if I was a flight nurse and I was trained to do it, I guess, I guess we could do it. I don't, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you know more than that mm -hmm. than I do, but wow. What has been one of your crazier calls? If you can say. <laughs> yeah. I'll, um, you know, of course we'll change details and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, gosh, it, it's kind of, that's kind of a, an interesting topic because there, you know, there, there's certain, there's certain levels of crazy, right? There's ones where I grew, there's ones that, you know, you don't want to talk about, and there's those ones, oh, there's right. um, all kinds of ones. But I think, you know, like, cause I thought about this question, like, what if they ask that question? What if I get asked that question? So I checked out your podcast and I think your podcast is honestly a great place to probably talk about the harder calls. If that's okay with you. Yeah, totally. totally. Right, so my hardest call, I'm going to change some things here because it, um, it, it, uh, it, it, it did make the news and that kind of stuff. So I need, I need to be a little bit careful. So sorry if I'm too ambiguous or I don't answer certain questions here, but, um, it was a call at a lake and I was, I was, we were driving down to it and I'm sitting here listening to it. And after you've been doing things for a while, you know, you hear things come over the radio and you get what's called your readback and you start to, you start to learn that the readback is almost always worse than things really are because usually what it is, is you have someone who's never seen an emergency like this in their life calling 911 with no training and, and just seeing, just relaying, Oh, I saw a car crash. It's gotta be bad. And you get there and it's like, yeah, actually it's okay. Um, but this one I was listening to it. I'm like, Nope something's wrong. This is going to be a really difficult call. And I could just tell it was a drowning call at the lake. And I knew the lake very well. Uh, the lake has, has a history of drownings. Um, just it's a man-made lake and there's a step off. And so it doesn't gradually go down. So people who can't swim think they're waiting and then they get to the step off and they lose their footing. So we get there and uh, I was a, a, a newish dad. I had a three-year-old son at the time. And we get there and I asked my partner on the way and I'm like, Hey, have you ever done, you know, from what we're hearing, this sounds like a patient who's not breathing with no pulse. Like, have you ever done a pediatric code before? And he says, I haven't. And so I'm like, okay, 
uh, you know, like when we get there, uh, you know, your big thing, is, he was an EMT basic, uh, but your big thing in your scope of practice is I really want you to, uh, we're going to see where other people are because there's other responders there already, but I really want you, you're going to be focusing on uh, chest compressions or you're going to be ventilating the kid with a BBM. Okay. If you're going to be ventilating the kid with a BBM, get a partner with you, have them maintain the mass seal for you. Okay. Because two people doing that is much better than one person trying to do both, especially on a kid. I'm like, Hey, emotions are going to run high, but it's not our emergency. Let's stay cool. And to this day, he ended up becoming a paramedic. Uh, he is now a supervisor as well. And there is no one person that I feel is more deserving of the awards he's received for his career. Um, and it's, and on, on this day, he ended up getting an award for it. I hadn't put him up for it, but that, that's, I'm getting off track. But anyway, he ended up being an amazing partner on this very sensitive call. So we arrive on scene and we have um, so a first responder agency that's there. And they have mostly uh, EMT basics and mostly what we call a first responder, which is um, I hate putting it in this term. It is, it's the lowest level of field responder certification you can get. It starts off with first responder, then EMT basic, then EMT advanced or intermediate, depending on what you go for, and then paramedic. And, but I, I don't want to say lowest because it sounds like I'm devaluing them. They're not. They're super valuable. They're super valuable to every single scene. And so we got in there and it was mostly first responders and then one EMT basic. And I knew a couple of them and the other ones I didn't know very well. And we get there and they're running, holding a kid who's uh, blue and limp and lifeless. And oh, it was one of those things where I'm like, okay, like take a deep breath. And I say, hey, stop running with them, put them on the ground, start chest compressions. Because here's a couple facts. And it's a couple things that the public doesn't realize about paramedicine. It gets hard. you know. So we do get, the public often wants us to just go, 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 go. But what a lot of people don't realize the data has shown is that when paramedics arrive on a scene and someone's not breathing, there's no pulse, the outcomes for patients are so much better if we stop and run the code on scene and take time uh, and get a pulse back before we transport. Because when we try and transport the back of that ambulance, we just don't do as good of a job as we want to. It's really difficult and we're down a dirt road. It's only going to get harder. So it's one of those things where you have to like, like you, and you, your emotions at paramedic be like, I need to get this person to a doctor now. Cause I cannot say like, I cannot fit. Like I can, I can do like everything paramedic does is really a stopgap towards death. Like we, we, we pump the brakes, but we don't stop the car. If, if that makes yeah, sense. That makes sense. Yeah. And so I'm getting there and, and I'm like, all right. You know? And so I, I like, I want to just get them going, but then, you know, I'm like, Nope, you know what your training says, you know what the data shows. Let's give this kid the best shot he can and let's stop this scene. Let's stop this chaos train that's going down. So I'm like, hey, let's put the kid on the ground. Let's start chest compressions. And it's like, all right, cool. Uh, they start chest compressions. And then once there was a leadership role uh, established and I stepped into it, um, once there was a leadership role established and people uh, kind of got, got their task, that's when you really start seeing like the inner responder come out of people and everybody just starts like hitting on all cylinders and everybody did. It was such, I mean, unfortunately the, the kid did not make it. I'll tell you that right now, but um, every responder, uh, once we kind of calmed down, everyone responded firing on all cylinders. And if the kid had the best shot he was ever going to have. Uh, and that's kind of what you have to walk away with on a lot of scenes as a paramedic is that we can't save everybody, but we can try and give them the best shot they're going to have. And so, and then it dawned on me, I'm the only paramedic. I'm the only one that can start an IV. I'm the only one that can push drugs. I'm the only one that can innovate. And it's just me. And so I'm like, okay. So we called for life flight, but they were going to be a little bit out. And the LZ was going to be a little bit hard to get to because of where we were. There are too many trees. So they were, they were in route, but it was going to be me for uh, just, just a little bit here. And, um, you know, it was pretty remote. So life flight was definitely a good call. 
And so uh, we start kind of running the code. I'm like, okay, um, I need to get access on this kid. Uh, you know, he's being bagged very well. My EMT partner jumped right in, was doing the bagging. He got a partner just like he should. And he was performing like a rock star. His rate was perfect. His depth was perfect. Everything was perfect. It was one of those moments, like as a panicked paramedic, looking over and seeing my EMT basic partner performing their job so well. And I don't know if he realized the level of comfort that gave me to be like, yes, that is being taken care of to the best it can be right now. I can move. And so I go, I was actually able to get an IV on him. I got a, tw- a smaller 22 gauge uh, on him. I think in hindsight, I might've just gone for an IO, um, but you know, dis- game time decisions, things change. Right, you go with it, right. You just yeah. make a decision and, and, to go. And it ended up being, uh, I mean, I ended up getting it like on, like on the first, on the first shot. So it didn't really delay a lot of time. So I'm like, all right, cool. So we got the IV, um, you know, we, we pushed Epi, we ran the code the best we could ended up getting the kid innovated as well. Um, that uh, ended up going uh, a remarkably uh, easier. Actually of all the children I've innovated, a lot of people worry about innovating children. I've actually found children to be easier to innovate than adults, but anyway, that's tangent. Hmm. Uh, so we kind of get that going. And we're running this code. And, you know, the big thing on a drowning victim is they're probably coded because they're hypoxic. Okay. They haven't had oxygen for a while. So let's fix hypoxia and let's try and get the heart to beat that, you know, newly oxygenated blood around. And so as long as we were doing CPR, we could get, we could palpable carotid pulse. We could even get a pulse oximeter reading on his finger. And we got, we were able to get the oximetry reading up to about 96% on a kid who'd recently, you know, drowned. And so it was, it was awesome. And, you know, we do a rhythm check every two minutes, but every two minutes we come back, it's flat, absolute flat line. And so it's just like, okay. And then, or we'd get like an agonal beat that's non-pulsatile, you know? And so right. it's just like, all right, you know, this isn't, this isn't happening. And we keep working, we keep working because everyone wants this kid to live. Lifeline lands, you know, and they come in. Um, we had called one physician already at that point. And that was the other hard part is, is we had to keep sending someone to run up a hill to make a call, phone call to a physician to come back down and relay the message. Um, And so they came back down and the physician, unfortunately, the physician just had said like, Hey, like, because we're relaying messages, I'm not going to tell you to stop trying to resuscitate this kid. You know, if I was there talking to the medic where I could, then maybe we could stop because at this point we had realized like, Hey, we're not saving this kid anymore, but we need at that time we needed permission to stop a code. And so that was a hard decision to make, but you know, we all, we all realized it had to be made because, you know, he's been underwater for too long. Unfortunately he's died, you know, Um, but we couldn't do that. And so then thankfully lifeline landed, they walked over and they said, Hey man, like we'll do the assessment here. Cause I can't leave the kid's side. I can't go around the the hill because I'm the highest level provider. You have to say. And so um, it's, that would technically be patient abandonment. If I ran up the hill and something wrong came down, what happened and I came back, they'd be like, Hey, like, what the heck? Um, so they were able to go run up the hill, call their physician, and then come back down and said, hey, we relayed everything to our physician. Uh, we have orders to go ahead and stop the code. And it was also nice to have a critical care nurse as well agreeing with me being like, hey, like, you're right. Like, this, you know, you guys have tried really, really hard to give valiant effort, but we need to understand that this child's dead. And so the next step then became, of course, now we're, we're on scene for a while. We have to wait for the MX and the police are looking. And so the next step came um and here's kind of the twist in the story is we look up and we realize there's no parents anywhere around and he's four there should be parents there's a dog that keeps running around though and the dog keeps coming over the kid and running back and then runs back over to a picnic table and then runs back 
And this is where the story gets really, really hard. And this was a very hard call for me for a long time. Um, it's, it's been, it's been probably eight years. Uh, and then one of the sheriff's deputies finds a cell phone uh, in the sand by the table. And he grabs the cell phone and it's not password locked or anything. And he starts looking at it and it starts off with a video of a female filming her son, her uh, an older son, maybe 12, uh, walking out into the lake. And he's like, hey, you know, it's just a normal family video. And then he drops and then the cell phone drops. So we can't see anything anymore, but we can hear. And what we hear is we hear the mom running after the other son. We hear another female who uh, we believe, I believe it ended up being um, another relative, run in after them. And then you hear nothing for a while. And so what we finally determined was that the four-year-old was the last one to go in and try and save his family. And so that was one of the hardest calls to run for a very long time because that one sat with me for a very long time. And so, uh, and it wasn't, it was one of those things to where the hardest part about the call had nothing to do with my training. It had nothing to do with being a paramedic or a nurse. The hardest part of the call uh, was things that you will never be able to teach or learn in school. And it had nothing, you can't train for it. And I think that call sat with me long enough that when it came time to do the podcast, EMS 2020, it became kind of a driving force of being like, you know what? There are so many things to train about to, to train people for that you don't get in school. And so our podcast really has a purpose. And so that's why we ended up doing that. Now I will say, I want to comment one more time on that EMT and why he is, uh, <clears throat> and why I hold him in such a high regard. And that is that while we're waiting for the MX, uh, we needed to have one person with uh, the patient at all times, because it's kind of a crime scene. They don't want uh, any, uh, you know, someone should be there. Uh, and he sat back there with the kid the entire time. And I felt really guilty because I was out, you know, technically still a leader on scene. I was, you know, running around doing different things and talking to different people and talking to the cops and giving a statement to the cops and talking to the MX and all that stuff. And he stayed back there the entire time. And, you know, it was just one of those things to where he never wavered and he went through a lot of emotional trauma there. And, you know, I know he did. And, but he sat back there the entire time and just did his job. And so I went and talked to him about that. And uh, we had a good long talk out, uh, you know, about it. And I think, and after that, it was like, you know what, like the guy that really needs that he needs, people need to know the job he did. And so he ended up getting, I want to say he got ENT of the year award um, because I think too often we want to celebrate the calls that go right. And don't get me wrong, or we want to award people for the calls that go right. And don't get me wrong, yeah. we should. We should award things that go well. But we need to find a way to also recognize um, those that do a stellar job when the outcome isn't as good. Because if I really have to be honest with myself, as much as I think paramedics are necessary and we do save lives, most often the fate is determined long before we get there. Oh, Yeah. And many, many times. And so I think when you have someone that can put forward that value and effort, you know, kind of in the face of knowing what's going to go on and they really show their true colors, especially because he was new at the time. This was his first really hard call. Um, that's the kind of person that you need to recognize. I think when you have somebody that you, you recognize people because you want people coming up in the industry to be like them. And yeah. so I looked at him and I'm like, you know what? 
this is the guy that new EMTs need to be like. They need to be like this guy. And so we were able to get him an award that he absolutely deserved. And, um, and yeah, he's still a paramedic to this day. He's a fantastic one at that. So anyway, that's my crazy call. Wow. I, um, first of all, just thank you for sharing it and, um, thank you for being vulnerable. Um, I don't think we, and I talk about this on the show a lot. We don't, we're not really trained to, um, deal with the trauma that comes with stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, oh yeah, you're nursing school. Yeah. You're going to be around a lot of people who die, you know, you're going to be sure. around like <laughs> families fucking wailing over they're losing their loved one unexpectedly or all this shit, you know, like that you don't. And it's like, how do you, how do you deal with that? You know, like, how do you, how do you prepare yourself? How do you respond? Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, like we, we are trying to talk a lot more about this in healthcare and, um, that it's a very real thing. Um, our brains don't know the difference truthfully mm-hmm. between like suffering, like seeing someone suffer and we experience the same of suffering in our brains. Like, so it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, my question is one, did you guys debrief that call at all? We did. Uh, thankfully. So this is one of the things, you know, I mean, earlier I talked about my flight agency, you know, being a really good supportive agency, but I also need to highlight, my ground agency as well for the support that I've received uh, from them. Um, you know, I, I think, so you talked about uh, debriefing and, you know, you know we, we'd call it a critical incident stre- uh, stress debriefing because we're EMS and everything needs an acronym. And uh, <laughs> so we call it CISD. Um, so <laughs> we did have a CISD over that. And, you know, it was absolutely, um, it was, and it was absolutely necessary. And it's, it's kind of one of those things where, it was a good CISD because everyone got to sit down and, uh, you know, in our CISD is the first thing you have is what they call the hot wash. And that is where everyone sits down and whatever feeling or emotion you have, you get it out then, And we start talking about those. And then after that, you start kind of breaking down the call and, you know, what happened when, what happened and why. Um, it's easier on calls like this one only because, I mean, it's an emotionally difficult call to go through but everything actually went as well as it could have gone. There were really no mistakes made, you know? I mean, like, uh, I mean, I, I still kind of, but it is weird. You'll focus on the, like, I, for a while I focused on, on, you know, I'm like, did I take too much time getting the IV instead of the IO? And had he got epinephrine sooner through an IO, um, you know, would that have, would that have been better? Would that have changed the outcome? Uh, I obsessed over that for a little bit, uh, but the CISD was a helpful thing where the physician uh, that was part of the CISD was like, no, it wouldn't have helped. It, it wouldn't, would not have changed the thing, you know? And so it, he, he's, yeah, and that, that's good to hear. Um, and so it was, it was a really good CISD where we all just got to sit around uh, and just really kind of support each other. And, you know, you need to know that you gave someone the best shot you, you know, they could have had. And, uh, or you don't need to know that, but I mean, like, cause sometimes, you know, mistakes do happen. We're not inhuman you know we are human we do make mistakes in yeah we're humans working with humans and we are infallible yeah yeah, <laughs> fallible. yeah. fallible absolutely also invaluable uh oh uh, infallible we said no, no no we're not yeah infallible, i said infallible but, yeah. but, but fallible i mean i mean fallible right we are fallible not infallible yes absolutely yes. yeah we are Sorry. We, we are we are fallible um but in, you know, in, in that particular case, you know, it, it was nice to have, and I knew it. Whenever it's a big case like that, you know, they warn you 
first off in, in paramedicine, at least my ground agency does this. Is what's so awesome about them is they tell you right off the bat, like, Hey, just so you know, like we are like, we're going to review this top to bottom. We review every call like this top to bottom. And they did. And at that age, the ground agency had an amazing way of doing things. If, if you're ever uh, bored and you want to look into some, well, you've probably heard of it as well. It's uh, they call it just culture. Some people call it culture of safety. Uh, those kind of things. Um, they were really good at that. And it was like, Hey, like, let's, let's start and look at this from a just culture kind of point of view. And they did. And there was something so relieving about having uh, a training director and our medical director sit down and be like, Hey, we, we reviewed the call and you guys did the absolute best you could. We couldn't find anything wrong with it. Um, because I know they would be honest because the process kind of demands, uh, demands that they be honest. And so to get that honest report was so relieving to me. But um, I think when it comes to dealing with these things, the agency absolutely must take an active role that you work for. They have to take an active role in supporting employees because unfortunately, we're kind of terrible at it. We, we pack emotions down quick. I mean, that's almost like our lever to pull, like, ah, and I got another call coming up soon. I got to pack this down. Push it down. And that's what I call it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, just pack it in. Uh, you know, and over time, you know, you keep tamping stuff down, it gets so dense that it won't tamp down anymore. And uh, I will say like a couple things that my graduate agency did, some initiatives that, you know, if there are any EMS professionals listening out there, or anyone who's in charge of these things, here are a few things that I, my graduate agency implemented that I thought was fantastic. Um, we have the, uh, we, it's called the bad call policy. And that is when you uh, have a bad call, you can choose to end your shift and go home and you'll be paid to the end of your shift. And the big reason that's there is that that way you make a mental health decision and not a financial decision. And the way their supervisors are trained to present it is we don't come home. We, we're, we present it like the, at least the way I would present these things. I sit down and be like, Hey, here's the thing. Uh, don't worry about covering your shift. I, I'll, I'll sit in the seat for you. I'll cover the rest. Your, I'll cover the rest of your shift. You should really take the day off today for the rest for the rest of your shift, you know, for the stressful call policy. Um, does that sound like a good idea to you? And sometimes I'm like, no, no, I'm good. And then you can also be like, you know, and then sometimes like I'll look at a call and be like, you know what? Like, I'm going to insist. You're not going to lose a dime. We're going to pay you to uh, till the end of the call. I'm going to insist, you know, just take the day off. Normal calls go, you know, finish the chart, head home, call it a day. And the second thing they did was they had a really active employee assistance program, which provided uh, free um, mental health services to all of their employees at zero cost. And the way they implemented that is um, they did a really good job of this. And that is don't wait for people to ask because we often won't. When you identify a stressful call that meets certain criteria, you go out and you meet the employee and you give them the phone number because it's all confidential. No one has to know they ever called. We will never know they called. We get a blank itemized anonymous sheet at the end of each quarter this is how much it was used for because uh, as, as the company, we paid for it, but it doesn't say anything about who used it at all. I don't even think it says what services they use. It's just basically like, hey, here's, here's what was used. Here's what you owe us for the service. And that's it. And so when we present EAP, the best way to present that is go and just give them the information. Don't wait for someone to have to ask for it. And that kind of puts in their court because the whole thing is like sometimes we don't want to admit we need it and asking for it is the same as, as admission. And so we found a lot of value and we found an increased usage, which is what we want, want people to use it. When we just approach people and said, hey, you had a really stressful call. I don't know if you need this or not, but if you do, it's 100% anonymous. We will never know you went. No one will ever know you went. 
here's a phone number you can call the toxin buddy and i'd encourage using it and uh, for me like personally i got to say and you know you don't have to say this for everybody but for me i got to say i've used it and i'm thankful i did here you go and so that was things that my ground agency did that were amazing and i think really contributed to the to the positive changes in mental health around a lot of employees that work there Oh my God. I would love if we in the nursing world could like adopt this bad call policy because um, there are seriously, as you know, times where shit, just horrible shit happens and, Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to recover from and to, to have the ability to just like go home. Like, I mean, we're a little bit in a sticky wicket in that, like, we have <laughs> so many patients and patients need nurses and you have to have, you know, people like, yeah, patients can't have, a, can't be in the hospital without a nurse, you know what I mean? So like, um, but if they're dead, then I guess they don't. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's but, true. I mean, to a point, you need a nurse after you've passed and to, to a point. Um, right. But I'll have to tell you about this off the recording, but we had something really insane happen recently that was like, I think it just like sent a shockwave of like, holy shit through like entire critical care. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll tell you after the call. But okay. um, I just think that after this um, episode, like show, but. I think that those people involved in that thing that happened should have gone home. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, we have, I feel like amazing leadership where we are. Um, And I know that like everybody did amazing things that day. And, um, and the patient actually lived, which is crazy, but um, it was so nutty. Um, And so, but like, anyway, those people are, traumatized currently traumatized sure. from what happened that day and and anyway i would have been great if they could have gone home well and i think you know i mean like you know you mentioned like staffing issue and i think a lot of management gets really afraid of what if people abuse this policy and i'm essentially paying paramedics or nurses to not be at work you know what if that happens um and what we found was that that wasn't the case when we first put the stressful call policy out there it was used a lot um, but then over time, it gradually got used less and less. Uh, and then we actually saw overall a reduction in absences. We saw um, a reduction in like crew conflict. And we saw a reduction in, in those kind of things. We saw like an overall lift in mood. And so the hard part about it is I think, especially when, you, when, you, when you're a manager, and uh, I was in management for a while in, in EMS as a supervisor. I refer to myself as a recovering supervisor. Uh, um, same, same. But yeah, right? Recovering, and so, yes. And so you know the stress. Like when you're in management, it's kind of, you always, you kind of have to draw that line of like, how like we, we can only give so much before we can't keep the doors open anymore and we can't see patients, you know, like you can only do so much. And so it's hard to just uh, trust in uh it's hard to trust in the process and it's hard to trust the long-term goal because the short term is really what you want you know it's nice to see the schedule filled but to understand that hey we're going to implement a policy that's probably going to punch some holes in the schedule for a little bit but then the long run it's going to get better that's difficult for management management to to hang on to but i would say like to those out there in leadership positions uh who would have um i'm so sorry about my phone there uh, who would have influence over this, I would absolutely say, uh, 
hold out for the benefits because your long-term benefits are going to be are going to be there. You're going to have fewer people quitting. You're going to have fewer people taking sick days. You're going to have happier employees who are more productive. Take the time, invest in them. Take the short-term hit because it's worth yeah. it. Yeah. It's like, hey, we, we really care. And, and honestly, again, I do feel like I work at an amazing place who does actually really care. We're mm. struggling with, you know, short staffing issues, just like everybody currently in healthcare. Um, but I know that the, you know, front-loading that work, I mean, goddamn, you should write a paper. Like, if you have this like research, I mean, not that you're gonna going to going to, but like, if you invest, if you front load that investment and in, like caring for your staff, like you you've just said it, just it, it the evidence is there. Mm-hmm. It yeah, pays. It's, it is. Yeah, it's it, it definitely pays uh, in the long run, you know. And I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of EMS agencies, you know, and I'm not talking about the ones that I've worked with, but you know, nationwide, coast to coast, um, you know, they're a lot of EMS agencies were kind of born in the golden era of paramedicine where everyone wanted to be a paramedic and you had a plethora of paramedics and they kind of got this attitude of like, all right, well, if you quit, I'll just hire another one because they're out there. And unfortunately that allowed some poor agencies to succeed, Um, you know, and, and agencies that really shouldn't be there were able to be there because they had more paramedics and jobs. So you have paramedics out there looking for jobs, scrambling for jobs. Um, I think a lot of that has actually caused a current crisis we're in right now, which I think is similar to the nursing crisis in that there isn't enough. Um, when I applied for it to be a paramedic in 2007, I think, maybe a little before that. Uh, no, that should be 2006. Anyway, I don't remember. But uh, when I applied to go to paramedic school, um, I was like one of like many people going for like 28 spots in one program. And that's it. Wow. And now that same program that I went to, that's still going, um, I've talked to, talked to some people who are running that program and they're like, yeah, we can't fill the seats. We're, we're taking almost any applicant that comes in, you know, like it's, uh, it's, you know, unfortunately it's like, there's no selection anymore. It's, it's, uh, as long as they meet the credentials and, and do okay on their interview, unless there's a big red, red flag, like everyone's kind of getting in hmm. and we're still not filling seats. And so it's, it's tough it's tough right now because there's mm. not a lot of, uh, not a lot of paramedics. So we definitely have some staffing holes. So I think do, now more than ever, we need to start retaining people. Do you think that's a result of COVID? I think COVID has had a lot to do with it. Um, so how COVID has impacted EMS? Um, it, it's been a game changer. Like it, it, it really has. What we're seeing is, um, so a little bit of politics about how an annual determines what hospital it's going to go to. Um, so really comes down to patient's choice because um, kind of the way the laws are written is that uh, technically a paramedic can refuse to take you somewhere. They can. They have the ability to do that. They almost never will because the liability is so huge because you're essentially telling someone, I don't think anything's wrong with you. And we really don't have the technology in the field to determine that. And so for a paramedic to refuse to transfer you, they absorb a huge liability. So most agencies that paramedics work for actually say, you can't do this. If you do that, you won't work here anymore because we mm-hmm. don't want to leave people behind um, that really need to go. And so, God, can there, you there imagine? Is, I just can't oh, yeah. imagine. Just... Oh, it, it, it happens. Because uh, we do have refusals. We do have people who say, hey, look, I really don't want to go. My, my, my friend called for me. Like, I'm not the one that called. I don't want to go. And they have the legal right to refuse you. And so you'll refuse and then you'll drive around and all of a sudden you'll 
get a, that 911 call and go right back. And now they're like, I want to go. I want to go. You know, so. Oh, OK. Um, or Sorry. it's worse. Yeah, I know. That was what I was like. Ugh. Or yeah. if you if for some reason you. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was yeah, on no a tangent. Uh, oh, all good. Um, so. So, yeah, so we determine it basically comes down to really wh- where do they want to go? As long as it's within reason, we'll take them there. Um, so the next thing, though, sometimes hospitals go on what's called divert. And they'll have like an ER divert where they don't have any rooms in the ER left. There's just there's either not enough staff to watch the patients or there's just physically no open beds. Um, and I, I would say COVID round one, uh, it was mostly no open beds because the staffing crisis wasn't where it was now. They had the staffing for it. But there was just no beds. But unfortunately, you know, uh, you know what COVID round one did to people. It, it, it burnt us out. And a lot of people who were nurses were just like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. And so we started seeing the hospital levels drop. And then COVID round two came back and we had all the same patient needs, but fewer nurses to do it. And so what we then go on is hospitals would all go on divert. And what would happen almost daily. This is how bad it's got. It actually still is right now. Daily, every single hospital in the entire county would be on red. They'd be on divert. Every single one. And so what happens then is, is we call it uh, zone management. What zone management means is that all the hospitals agree, they go on a round robin. And it's basically where you pick up a patient somewhere, who's the next hospital up? It's going to be, you know, St. Mary's of the Mountain, whatever hospital long name, <laughs> they have, you know, uh, it's going to be that hospital, that's the next one, and you're going to go. And uh, unless it is like a lights and sirens emergency, then you still go to the closest one, but then they they get pulled out of the next round robin. But anyway, so that's called zone management. The way this has impacted EMS is that trips where it would normally be like, hey, okay, you have chest pain, you know, there's a hospital, uh, you know, two miles away, would you like to go to that one? They'd be like, yeah, that's fine. It's an emergency thing. Mo- most patients will opt for the closest. Uh, it's either going to be the closest or like the nearest big one. And so you usually kind of know where people are going. But now you have people who live at the south end of the county. And uh, for those that are listening across the country, uh, Oregon has huge counties, uh, which I discovered was a thing when I went and visited Minnesota. Minnesota is like <laughs> you can drive through seven counties in two feet. Like it's ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, Oregon has giant counties that you know encompass multiple cities. And so we'll have someone in a, you know, city in the south in the county, but the round robin says you're going all the way to the northwest. And so ours, uh, ambulance companies that were typically staffing for calls that took 55 minutes now have, you know, two hour you know, or 90 minute to two hour long calls. And so the staffing needs pumped up because calls take longer or they're going to hospitals and it's like, hey, I get it's a round robin and that I have to take this hospital or that I have to take this patient in my hospital that didn't magically make a bed appear just because I have to legally take them. Like a, a bed's not magically appear. So you have to wait until I can discharge somebody. And so now you have these extensive wait times where ambulances are getting freed up. So now you have a CMS system that needs more ambulances, but has less paramedics. And so it's greatly impacted EMS and 911 and the ability for 911 to function. I mean, people are waiting longer to get ambulances for their emergencies. Um, a lot yeah. of people are scared to go to the hospital because of COVID. So they wait until they get really, really sick. And so we need more restock, we need more resupplies because we're taking sicker patients. Uh, for my flight job, uh, we do a lot of, because we work, my particular helicopter is based in a more rural area. A lot of the hospitals have these jam-packed ICUs that are full of, you know, really sick COVID patients. And we're transferring them 
we're flying them into just larger overpacked ICUs. Um, and so, and that's taking a helicopter out of service out of that area to do that. You know, and if you think about that, like how critical a helicopter is in a rural environment to be able to fly people in who need that, it's out of service. I can't take two people in it. You know, I can barely fit one. So it's, uh, it's, it, it has really had an impact. And of course, all these patients are really, really sick and the ventilator settings are crazy, you know, and it's, uh, and just like moving a COVID patient, like the act of like moving them from the bed for whatever reason, you'll see saturation suddenly stop dropping or what'll happen is, you know, it'll wake them up a little bit because their sedation couldn't quite handle the move. And so now they're over breathing or they're resisting their vent and now the vent's not ventilating the way it should. And so now we're trying to re-paralyze them or give them more sedation and do these different things. And so, yeah, it's, and then you'll do that. You'll do two, well, you'll do one, you'll do another and another, and you're flying all day. Flying's fatiguing, by the way, it's fun, but it's also fatiguing. Uh, mm. It's loud. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, COVID has left its mark. Yeah. God damn it. it yeah. yeah. I'm like, I just want to be respectful of time. Like we've been talking for almost an hour. <laughs> hey, I, I'm here for you. So it's however long you want to go. That's totally cool. So, um, I, uh, yeah, I, what I will say is that, um, we're feeling the pain as well. I, and the patient, the patients are sicker. They're straight up sicker. Like, oh, yeah. I think that the COVID, like whatever, like it's back to your point of they're waiting to come to the hospital. And so then they're like, anyway, just, it feels like their acuity is higher and they're sicker mm-hmm. and the hospitals are full and, you know, health, healthcare providers are burnt. Okay. Let me, let me get clear on this. When you drop someone off, when you're transporting a critical, critical, critically ill patient to like an ICU or whatever, are you ever queued up to like the next place you got to go and the next call you got to go to? Yeah, that does happen. Um, it happens in, uh, it happens in flight, but not as much as it happens in ground in ground ambulance. Like you can drop off to an ER and you're like, but like you'll get to the ER and you'll mark your status, uh, on your computer or sometimes you do it by radio, depending on where you work, you'll say, you know, Hey, we're, you know, we're, uh, we're at destination and your pager will already light up with the next call, the next 911 call. And so sometimes you got to call dispatch back and be like, Hey, there's no bed here. Like I can't leave. And they're like, okay, just, just so you know, like every other hospital, like literally every other ambulance has a patient in it in the entire County. You're the first one to get to a hospital. So you're the most likely to be the first one clear. And so, yeah, it will light up. Like you'll, you'll sit there and you're like, all right, I, I already know I'm going to leave here and use my lights and sirens and blow through traffic again. It happens in flight. Um, it, it, it's much more rare, uh, in flight. Um, mostly because when it comes to flight, like we still have, like you have to refuel versus an ambulance fuel level will last all day. You know, uh, after every flight you're depending on how far it is, like you're looking for more fuel, at least before you can run another one. So there's always a little bit of downtime, uh, between flight, but it does happen. It does happen where they paid you out and they say, Hey, we got another flight for you. So you, hmm. you get ready for the next. So wow. it's, uh, it does happen. Yeah. Interesting. Huh? Yeah, that would, yeah, it's sort of like uh, from the critical care or the nursing world of like, oh yeah, you know, you know, you get this person coming in from, I don't know, um, Ketchikan, Alaska, and you got to get rid of your patients so that you can take this other patient, you know, um, 
anyway, um, we have gone all over the place and I just want to say, I'm so grateful for your time, for showing up on the show, for being so cool and, um, being vulnerable and, um, well, I feel like this is, this is like the appropriate podcast, you know, for this. And I really meant what I said earlier and that I'm so happy there's a podcast like yours that fills the space that needs to be filled where we kind of focus on us a little bit, you know, like we talk about what we're going through and, and, you know, and that's, uh, and, yeah. and that, that's nice. It's nice and it's needed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I want to ask you, like, where do you find the light? when you're having like what brings you joy when you're when you're not at work uh it's easily my kids uh so uh i'm a single dad in the sense that i mean like i like this i'm a single dad but i'm not a single parent i actually have a really good co-working uh co-parenting relationship with their mother and we both get plenty of parenting time and so that's really you know worked out well for them but um you know the nice thing about them is they're both young enough to where they're they're very innocent uh, you know, in the world. And they are, they don't know anything about EMS. They don't know anything about flight, except for that they really think the helicopter is super cool. Um, which, which by the way, being able to take your kids to see a helicopter anytime you want, that's, uh, that's dad points right there. But um, anyway, they, uh, they really think it's all like super cool. And just to kind of come home and just like talk to someone that is eight. And uh, I have an eight-year-old and very soon I'm going to have a six-year-old. His birthday's coming up. Um and just be able to talk to them about anything, you know, like, um, and just to be able to kind of laugh at them, like growing up and do things for them and do fun things, just kind of be a kid again and have all the excuses to, you know, like watch kids shows and that kind of stuff and play and do those things is just, it's nice because it's, uh, it, it allows me to separate from the job. I think, you know, we have a challenge as healthcare providers in the sense that our skill set never really turns off. You know what I mean? Like, if you're walking through a mall, your skill set could be needed. You know, like if you saw someone collapse in front of you, maybe you have. Uh, all of a sudden, your skill set's there. If you're an accountant, don't get me wrong, accountants are amazing, and I am very thankful for accountants. Um, <laughs> personally, very thankful for accountants. But uh, you know, it's very unlikely that an accountant's going to be walking through a mall and someone's going to be like, "I need my taxes done, stat." You know, like that's we're not going to see that happen. Versus us, like it's a skill set that's also a life skill, and so to be able to go home and not not use it to be able to like shut work off in every way and just play with those kids uh, is, is fun. I do have one story. Maybe this needs to be cut because we're running out on time, but it's funny. I'm good uh, on time. All right. Uh, my oldest came to me. This will embarrass him someday. I'm sure. But uh, came to me the other day and th this is children. This is having children unsolicited. I'm downstairs. And I'm just throwing together some PB and J something like that. And he just comes up to me and he says, Hey dad. I'm like, yeah, buddy, what's up? He goes, uh, I pooped, but it was so dry. I didn't need to wipe. And I'm just like, but you should always try. Did you try? And he's like, yeah, of course I tried. Of course <laughs> I did. Um, by the way, the toilet paper roll is out of toilet paper. And I just said, uh, then how did you wipe? And he just goes back. It doesn't matter, dad. We need more toilet paper. And it just kind of storms off. And so like, this is, I'm trying not to laugh at him because you can tell he's now embarrassed because of course, obviously he made no attempt. But, oh uh, my God. Anyway, but that, but that's what I get to come home to. And like that, the level of problem I get to deal with now is just being like, Hey, bud, did you wipe? As opposed to, Hey, did we get the right drug? You know, like that's right. 
Right. It's it's a beautiful shift. So yeah, they they are my light. They are hilarious and super active, and they're growing up a little faster than I want them to. But that's okay. Mm. Oh, it just made me want to. I don't have kids, and that's okay. It's totally oh, yeah. okay with me. Fine, fine choice that we made. But I just thought about little ones and how fun they are to hug. And anyway. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I want to just give the on the spirit of giving thanks. I want to say thanks so much to being on the show. Uh, thank you out there for listening. Um, I hope that not too many people have <laughs> boatloads of sodium and <laughs> inundate the hospital. Um, yeah. Whoever is working out there on Thanksgiving or the day after, I really appreciate you since I am off. I, anyway, just want to say thank you. Um, so do you have any last closing thoughts, actually, Chris? Uh, I'll plug my podcast one more time if that's Oh, okay. my God. Oh, my <laughs> God. It. You guys, you have to listen to it. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. It's all good. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Like I said, my name is Chris Finkston. I have a, a, a co-host, Spencer Oliver. And we have a podcast called EMS 20 slash 20. And I do want to say we came up with the name in 2019 before 2020 became so notorious. And now we kind of regret being EMS 2020. But um anyway as, as in like hindsight but anyway ems 20 uh 20 we're on itunes we're on everything um we review real calls that were run uh in the field and we have a new episode every wednesday and maybe i'll throw this out there uh, maybe we'll drag uh we'll drag nicole onto an episode as a guest who knows dude i just totally that would be so fun that's all. I would yeah, say. Be we so love fun. different perspectives. We do have calls come in that involve a lot of uh, like nursing level stuff. But like when we have like transfers to go bad, those kind of things, I think it'd be awesome to have you on. So <laughs> there's there's your invite. We'll see if it happens. Oh, my God. That's so rad. OK. All right. Well, um, I'll close this out and say stay safe and stay sane. And we'll see you on the next one. Thank you so much. Hey, no worries. I- Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave an honest review on whatever platform you're listening. Also, feel free to share this with your nursing colleagues. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at founddownpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send in any stories. Just make sure they're HIPAA compliant. Also, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at founddownpodcast. We'll see you on the next one.